America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation despite the fact that we are looking at a great, painful, and potentially fateful question. Will the former president of the United States be prosecuted by the uh, Biden Department of Justice? Uh, there are people on both sides, honestly, who are suggesting that this kind of trial, this kind of persecution would be a cataclysm, would be a disaster for the United States of America. So who do you talk to about something like this? You talk to one of the most fair, open-minded, and knowledgeable commentators on matters of our judicial system and prosecutions and where appropriate and not appropriate. Andrew McCarthy, who is a veteran federal prosecutor, is uh, also... Uh, one of the uh, senior editors and contributors to National Review. He's also a Fox News contributor, and he's uh, received a great deal of acclaim for his fair-minded uh, and, and, frankly, open-minded commentary on the hearings yesterday in particular. Uh, Andy, I, I, I did hear some of your comments, and I, I appreciate your clarity and sincerity on all of this, but... Uh, uh, first of all, regarding the hearings yesterday, uh, do you do you believe that uh, there is enough evidence to make it necessary and advisable for uh, the Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, to launch a full investigation or convene a grand jury or basically go after former President Trump? Well, Michael, thank you very much for the kind words. I, I think that ship has sailed. The Justice Department does have uh, an open investigation into this. It's clearly moved into the uh, Trump's inner circle. Um, they've already indicted uh, Peter Navarro and um, uh, you know Bannon and some other people who were around Trump. So obviously the investigation has moved from – just the Capitol riot to the uh, activities that led up to it. Uh, and Garland has said that they'll follow the evidence where it goes. So I, I think there clearly is an investigation. Now, whether it's necessary and appropriate to do anything beyond investigate obviously depends on what they find. But I'm inclined to think that Bill Barr was right when he said that uh, if you're going to have a situation where the Justice Department intervenes in electoral politics, no matter which party uh, is on the uh, receiving end of the scrutiny, that we should demand that there's strong evidence of a meat and potatoes crime, not some kind of a creative or aggressive prosecutorial exercise, because otherwise all you do um, is rile up one side or the other and make it much more likely that the that the Justice Department's immersion in electoral politics, which none of us should want, is becomes a regular feature of our system as each side decides that they're going to you know take a piece out of the other because of what happened the last time. So I, I think he's right. I think unless you have absolutely clear evidence that Trump committed a crime you'd be crazy to uh, indict. And I think the only reason we're having this discussion is because 
he should have been impeached. He wasn't impeached, and as a result, he's not disqualified. I think ha- had he been disqualified, I doubt we'd be having this discussion. No, I think that's entirely true, and uh, and it's interesting that you say that uh, he should have been de- impeached. He was impeached. He wasn't removed from office. Yeah, right. You're right. Of course, what what yeah. you're saying is that uh, 14 days before the end of his term, he should have been removed from office. That would have achieved what people were most concerned about, which was precisely the idea of him coming back and running again. Um, there's yeah. a piece today. Can I, can I, yeah. May I just say, Michael, I, just in reaction to that, what what I'm actually saying is because they, as a practical matter, they couldn't remove him uh, given the time constraints before his term ran out, that the investigation the January 6th committee is doing now is the investigation that the House should have done back in January 2020, and they should have competently crafted articles of impeachment that matched the behavior that we're now seeing in its full expanse. And I think if they had done that, they'd have had a better chance of actually getting him uh, disqualified in the Senate trial rather than the impeachment article that they did, which I don't think was representative of the worst of his behavior. A very important point. And uh, have you seen the piece by Jack Goldsmith? Jack Goldsmith, a, profe- a professor at Harvard Law School and one of the real legal stars and a, and a conservative, um, he suggests that an indictment by the Justice Department would be, he says, a cataclysmic event for the nation, that it would would have a devastatingly negative impact on U.S. politics by going to the ultimate level of, of fighting out campaigns and disagreements about policy by various prosecutions. And this is a very, very high-profile prosecution with a, a defendant who would be, I'm, I'm sure, very active in uh, talking about his own defense. Do you agree with Professor Goldsmith? I do. I, I think Jack is right about the uh, the institutional concerns. And I, I also, you know, for what it's worth, I, I think that um, the framers were careful about distinguishing um, impeachable offenses from, you know, mere penal offenses. What they basically said was that impeachable offenses, as Hamilton put it, were political Offenses, and, and what he meant by that was uh, offenses in the nature of uh, dereliction of duty and conduct unbecoming, the, the sorts of things that aren't necessarily criminal um, in the penal system, but that convey this idea of betrayal of the public trust, which is why you don't need to prove a, a, a penal crime in order to prove high crimes and misdemeanors. And the point, I think, is that Public office is uh, is a benefit. It's not a right, uh, and you don't have a right to have it. It can be it can be taken away. It's a privilege, and it, it's it's on a public stage in a way that a criminal prosecution isn't. Criminal prosecution is about private wrongs, and the reason we have a high burden of proof with respect to that is because liberty, which gets taken away at the end of a successful criminal prosecution from the government standpoint. Uh, Liberty is a right. It's not a privilege. So you have to prove it at a high level and the consequences borne by the individual. 
But what we're talking about with a president who abuses his power is not an individual offense. It's a it's really the kind of thing that the framers designed impeachment for. Uh, Andrew McCarthy, former prosecutor, a distinguished prosecutor and a um, contributing editor at National Review. Andy, can you stay for a few more moments? Because I understand there is breaking news about to hit the world about the Dobbs case and the ruling on Roe v. Wade. I am... Uh, I I would like to get your opinion of what the most important thing to keep in mind is regarding this likely ruling, if it does follow the uh, leak that uh, was promulgated about the decision, that uh, what the most likely and important thing for people to keep in mind is to prevent a hysterical overreaction, which I think the left is already whipping up. Uh, the uh, most important thing for me, and we'll uh, get to the much more weighty opinion of Andrew McCarthy, is for people to remember that no law changes. No law is declared unconstitutional by this decision. Basically, we are opening it up for discussion and debate, not closing it down. We will be right back on The Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, so pleased to have the opportunity to speak to one of the leading, and honestly, I mean that, one of the leading legal commentators on air in any format, Andy McCarthy, who is a best-selling author. He's contributing editor at National Review. He's a fellow at National Review Institute, a Fox News contributor, and most importantly, a very distinguished former chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, who... uh, won universal acclaim for his uh, successful prosecution of some truly murderous, horrible terrorists. Okay, speaking of terror, (laughs) uh, they are anticipating that either tomorrow or Friday at the latest, the Supreme Court is going to release its actual formal decision on the Dobbs case, the Roe versus Wade case. And... um, uh, there are people actually who are predicting violent reactions, something across the country that would resemble what happened with the death of uh, George Floyd. What is it that people should keep in mind most importantly to prevent that overreaction, Andy McCarthy? Well, I think, Michael, that your uh, point before the break uh, hit it on the head, which is that uh, – This is not going to change any laws. The only thing that happens if the court reaches a final decision that is consistent with the draft opinion that we saw from Justice Alito that the court said was at least an authentic draft opinion but doesn't have any effect, um, were the the outcome to be consistent with the Alito decision, what that would mean is the issue of abortion would be returned – to the place where the places where it should never have been taken away from in the first place, which is the states, so that people could democratically decide what kind of uh, abortion restriction regime, if any, uh, they wanted to live under, and it would not change a single law. All it would mean is that uh, 
the place where this will be decided in the future would be uh, the legislatures, not the Supreme Court, because if the Constitution doesn't have anything to say about a particular issue, then the, the presumption in our law is that it remains a state law issue. I, I, frankly, you know, if you look at this logically, uh, I'm, I'm always surprised that the, uh, that the left is so hysterical about the idea that the federal courts wouldn't be deciding this because what they continue to tell us is that uh, this is something that uh, the country recognizes that women need and for purposes of equality and their participation in the economy and so on, uh, it has to be permitted uh, with whatever regulation uh, should, should apply. But if that's the case, they shouldn't have anything to fear because the people who are going to be living under these regimes will be, you know, democratically deciding what the restrictions are. Well, that's that's it exactly. And the the truth of the matter is that, uh, in other words, uh, what it means is that we aren't going to be going through uh, huge legal proceedings, though there may be political consequences, even for states that have passed new abortion restrictions like Mississippi or uh, Texas or Oklahoma, that uh, those laws will then stand until legislatures decide to change them. And given the public polling on, on this issue right now, it's, uh, it appears that uh, the majority of Americans um, are upset by the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, and I, th I think that a large part of that comes from just misunderstanding. People thinking that with Roe v. Wade uh, overturned, that abortion is going to be illegal, impossible, inaccessible everywhere. And that's certainly not true. There are a bunch of states, including California and Massachusetts, and I believe the state of New York, where they're actually talking about moving in the other direction to make abortion more available, even for the late stages of pregnancy. Isn't that a real oh, I fear? That, I, I think that's not only correct. I think they're also going to try to make it easier uh, for people who live in states where the restrictions are tighter to, you know, to, to relocate at least temporarily to take advantage of those services. So, yes, that's all going to play out. And that's what happens in America when it's functioning correctly. We have a bumptious democratic society. We're going to have different rules in different places. Uh, and uh, that's really what should happen. What shouldn't happen is the Supreme Court basically uh, calling not just a timeout, but a full suspension of democracy and taking away from uh, you know, not only public discourse, but public regulation, an issue that is not for the court to decide. It's for the public to decide. Well, there, there are so many issues like that. But uh, again, it's it's one of those things where there seems to be a real attempt to discredit this Supreme Court in particular. Uh, and, uh, and part of that is the attempt to draw Ginny Thomas, the wife of uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, into the controversy over January 6th, which it seems to me is yeah. also a destructive course of action, don't you think? I certainly do. I mean, I, I think the the January 6th committee, which I believe is involved in a, an investigation, I think it was important, and I think many people think it's important, most people in the country think it's important, that we have a full record of what happened on 
uh, on January 6th, but I think it's unfortunate that there was a committee that was composed the way it was in a in a partisan way and that is running roughshod over a lot of norms that I think the the Democrats, frankly, will come to regret when they're not in power anymore. I don't think they're going to like to see a committee where, uh, you know, Congress uh, investigates other members of Congress and the spouses of Supreme Court justices and conducts itself like a grand jury, getting people's phone records and, uh, you know, running roughshod over uh, privilege claims and the like. I, you know, what goes around comes around in politics, and I just think they're going to be very sorry they went down this road. Well, I, again, uh, they won't have too long to find out because nope. it is widely anticipated that uh, Nancy Pelosi is seeing her last days as Speaker of the House. Um, <laughs> you, you've heard, of course, about the plan to elect Donald Trump as the new Speaker. Uh, is is that what it is now as a speaker? I, I yes. Heard yesterday, uh, somebody wanted to run him for uh, governor of Texas or something. I don't. No, no, it's to be speaker something. speaker of the House because then they could impeach Biden and uh, Harris, ah. and Trump is then third in line for the presidency. And it is it is constitutional for a non-member of the House to be elected speaker, right? Yeah, well, I guess it, it is constitutional, and after all. He's shown himself to be a remarkable <laughs> tactician with a great mastery of the way Congress works. So uh, <laughs> I can see why they'd want to do that. Um, uh, Andy, appreciate your commentary, your enlightenment, and most of all, your courage and consistency, and bless you for it. Uh, Andrew McCarthy, you can read his latest commentary about uh, both the Roe case and uh, the ongoing uh, House Select Committee on January 6th. And more about that and what they found and didn't find yesterday. Coming up on the MedVet Show. Your outlet for outrage. Where's the outrage? I, I'm shook up, and you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be driving down the road listening to all this. I'm going to wreck the car. And... And on the uh, Michael Medved show, we were talking about the epic, historic, uh, not to be forgotten, and uh, deeply, deeply significant uh, flag raising yesterday of the uh, new pride flag and uh, the comments by the governor of the state of Washington uh, in his third term, Governor Jay Inslee, uh, speaking with pride about pride and the pride flag and what it meant. This is clip 17A. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Jay Inslee. I'm proud to stand before you as governor of the most just, the most equitable, the most open state in the United States, the state of Washington. And I'm proud to be able to say that. And it has taken many people, many decades to come to this point in our long march towards justice, bending the arc of the moral universe always toward justice. And I want to thank everyone on these steps today, thank the predecessors in the legislature, in the court, and my predecessors on this march open, uh, upward to a place of true tolerance, true openness, true justice. And we have made a lot of progress in the last several decades. Okay, and uh, then, of course, the uh, idea that the... Uh, 
arc of uh, justice, uh, the arc of the uh, history is long, but it bends toward justice. That's a uh, citation from Dr. King. It was actually cita- um, citing a uh, prior famous sermon uh, by someone in the Baptist church tradition. Uh, Governor Inslee went on about the work that lies ahead in his point of view. Uh, this is 17B. But the point I want to make is raising this flag has a purpose. It is a purpose of continued commitment, not just celebration, because we have to understand that there still are voices of intolerance. There are still those who still feel threatened, who still will not allow people to be who they will be and to love who who they will love. And we are raising this flag to say we're better than that in the state of Washington. And we have to realize for those who think all these efforts have been completed, for those who think all of these battles have been won, there is more work to be done. There will be more work to be done as long as we have a disproportionate number of our homeless youth be in the pride community who suffered internal struggles sometimes with their families and now are on our streets. There will be more work to be done while the suicide rate for our youth and our young people in the pride community is higher than in the rest of the community. We have more work to be done. So while we celebrate this flag today, let's look at it as a commitment to the future. Let's keep working. Let's bend the arc of the moral universe forward. Um, had you... Jeremy, had you been aware that uh, in our homeless community there was an overrepresentation of what he calls the pride community, the LGBTQ plus community? I, I, honestly, are there a lot of uh, transgendered people in the homeless encampments? I'm, it's just, and this is work for the state of Washington. Uh, by the way, it is true that uh, suicide rates are, by the way, not not drastically higher, but they're higher for particularly for young people uh, who are struggling with gender issues and gender identity. Does does putting up a flag like this make it less likely that um, that that people will will kill themselves if if it does? Uh, I mean. And and again, the the idea that this great celebration is actually going to have that impact, making people more optimistic and appreciative and grateful, and less likely to do harm to themselves. How does that work when there's another person making a presentation with this flag raising yesterday? Uh, this is a trans woman whose name is Ajia Topu Pu. Vienna, really. She is co-chair of the Washington State LGBTQ Commission. She had this to say, 18A. Talafalava. Uh, my name is Anayatipu Vienna. Um, I am Fafafine. I am Samoan. I am also a trans woman. Um, I also don't want to sugarcoat right, what's happening across the land, across this country, across the world. Um, where attacks on women, um, on the rights of women to be able to make decisions over their own bodies, 
Um, it isn't out of the, the need to protect women and children, right? It's out of, the, out of fear uh, that um, white patriarchy will not be upheld. Um, where doctors are still performing genital surgeries on infants um, to uphold a gender binary that perpetuates so much violence on women, on gender diverse people, on trans people, on anybody that isn't a white cis hetero male. Um, it is to uphold white patriarchy. It is this fear that women and gender diverse people will enact the same atrocities um, and violence inflicted onto us. It is a fear of a world similar to this one where created by white patriarchy, where marginalized communities continue to fight for resources and fight for bodily autonomy. Okay, um, now some cheerful, <laughs> cheerful news and encouraging news. Uh, and her concern about overthrowing white patriarchy, is it, is it really represent a majority of the people in this state to... Uh, uh, to to take that position about everything that has gone before in this state? Well, there will be an exploration of some of these issues, a promo for a uh, new CBS special called Gender, the Space Between. This is uh, clip 10. There's a certain palatable transgender person who has been put forth in the media. Transgender doesn't look just like one thing. There is more than just boys, girls, men, women. There could be people who live in the spaces between that. In the 70s and the 80s, we didn't have language for that. We just kind of got lost. I identify as a gender. I identify as gender fluid. I identify as gender queer. The older I get, the more I just identify with being non-binary. I feel like I've been running and running and running from gender all my life, and like this is as far away as I can get. People think that the word transgender just means oh, switching genders or transforming. It's much more than that. There are men and there are women. I am neither of those things. We're in a time of a gender revolution. In some ways, and this this is difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand, and I'm sure they're going to clear this up on CBS. See, this is part of, uh, if you want to ask why it is that uh, people who are LGBTQ are more likely to be homeless or suicidal or anything, it's it's the... The idea that the world is so complicated that you have to think about when you're going into a bathroom, which one you go into, where nothing is decided. Basically, one of the difficult things about the whole woke revolution is the burden it puts upon young people. I mean, one of the things that kids need growing up, and I say this as someone who's proudly raised kids and is trying to have an impact on grandchildren, they need to know what is expected of them, what is supposed to happen. And it doesn't mean that everything is laid out and everything is decided, but for goodness sake, something as basic. And the other aspect of this is one of the most fundamental desires that people have in life. And one of the most important things we do is procreation, is actually making new babies and new people. And uh, the, the notion that, well, I can't decide what my gender is, doesn't that tremendously uh, undervalue 
and disrespect this great height of, of human experience, which is the next generation and procreation. We'll be right back. to pop culture and from coast to coast this is the michael medved show and on the uh, michael medved show the uh, flag waving it's not uh, flag waving it's a flag raising at the state capitol in olympia with uh, all kinds of uh, fanfare and uh, uh, celebration because they were raising this new uh Progress Pride flag, uh, which, okay, congratulations, great. Uh, but there is more on why it is that the woke issues are not among those things that will just go away, will just evaporate. I mean, they need to be, some of the extremes and some of the craziness needs to be exposed and discussed especially when it's very public. For instance, there is a, um, a preschool teacher who generated a certain amount of controversy because she decided to come out as trans to her four-year-old students and uh, had this to say about the process. This is clip four. Today on the last day, I finally decided to come out to my kids. And my kids are older, they're four and five. And the way that I did it is just read them a book about this teddy bear that uh, kind of comes out as a trans girl. And it's really nice and it's very simple. They understood it right away. And I think what made me cry the most was that afterwards, like I kind of looked at them and there was just a silence in the room and I just thought like, oh my God, now they see me as a totally different person. And before this, they loved me. I was such, uh, you know, one of their favorite teachers and it felt so good to have that. And I think that's one of the biggest fears I had is that as soon as they found out about me, they would lose all love for me. And then one of my kids breaks the silence and she gets up and she just is like, she just hugs me. And she's just like, everyone give Ruti a hug. And they all came and they gave me a hug and she was just like, we love you. Like, we love you so much. And I'm, I'm, yeah, it made me really emotional. And it was, I think, one of the biggest moments in my transition where I truly felt like at peace with um, who I am and that, like, even kids can understand it. Even kids can accept me. And okay. Uh, it, seriously, this sounds like a very nice person and obviously very devoted to her students. The The question is, how does it benefit a four-year-old uh, to, and you can, you, do you think that people should be wrestling with their gender identity when they're four and five? I mean, our oldest grandchild is five. And uh, the, the idea that you're throwing in this uh, additional item to be discussed at home. And, and, and again, if uh, she says she was their favorite teacher, uh, even after her transition, and she says the kids could understand it because she read them a book about trans teddy bears. Was it called trans teddy bears? 
Uh, could people play? To, uh, by the way, that's something that I'm sure somebody's going to manufacture is a a a trans doll that where you can go ahead and trans transition her to female and then back to male. Wouldn't that be a, a wonderful and enlightened toy? And uh, then there's more wokeness of school that is, I think, less wholesome, touching, sympathetic than what we just heard. A uh, Wisconsin first grade teacher leads her students in pledging allegiance not to the American flag, but to the flag of uh, the Pan-African movement. Listen, this is in Wisconsin, clip three. And one. Fist up. On the count of three. One, two, three. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the Afro-American people. Under God, I will protect freedom. Seek peace. Honor our ancestors. And encourage and support the development and prosperity of people of African descent. You may be seated. Uh, is this a uh, public school? I believe that it is. And speaking about this issue, there's, uh, there's also a case from Portland. And, uh, of course, it's from Portland, but it's actually somebody who isn't from Portland. He's from Indiana. And uh, the story in the Oregonian uh, shows that uh, just before he sentenced Malik Fard Muhammad, a federal judge Tuesday, that's yesterday, wanted to understand what drove the 25-year-old man to hurl Molotov cocktails at police in Portland and to break windows during mass protests in the city's downtown in 2020. Everybody wants to know what happened with you, said U.S. Judge uh, Marco Hernandez. How did this happen? Muhammad, who traveled with his girlfriend from Indiana to Portland during the height of the social justice protests two years ago, now stood in a blue jail smock in Hernandez's 15th floor courtroom beside a public defender. Muhammad told the judge it was lots of frustration with the system and frustration with not being heard. Uh, but Judge Hernandez went further. He said, come on, I mean, you're a bright guy. So I was just wondering what your thought process was that suddenly put you in the position where you thought that this was okay, this was the thing to do, where people could get killed or hurt. I'm having trouble grasping how you got there. I have trouble with it too, Muhammad responded. I was manic at the moment. I wasn't on the medication. I just regret my decisions, he said, and if I could take them back, I would. Mohammed told the judge, I'm here now to atone for them. He got a 10-year sentence. The Molotov cocktail that he threw in front of a line of officers near the downtown Justice Center created a large flame that scorched the uniform and lower leg of Portland police officer Dustin Barth near the intersection of Southwest 2nd Avenue and Main Street. In October 2020, Mohammed, this is after that event, Muhammad smashed out windows at the Oregon Historical Society in a Portland State University building with a metal baton, supplying other rioters with baseball bats to break out downtown windows before running from police with a loaded handgun. Um, 
the uh, prosecutor said Mohammed previously served in the U.S. Army. He could have used his skills to come to into this district and be someone who could have led and righteously addressed issues of injustice, the prosecutor told the court. The 10-year sentence reached after plea negotiations between federal and state prosecutors and Mohammed's defense lawyer should send a message of deterrence to others, the prosecutor said. If you come into this district and to sow discord to commit further violence and to exacerbate these issues, you'll be held accountable. He also, now listen to this, he's forfeited Mohammed the approximately $200,000 that the Portland Freedom Fund posted to bail him out of jail after his initial arrest on state charges of restitution, uh, according to his lawyer. The fund, the Freedom Fund, put up 10%, that's $212,500 of his $2.1 million bail. He was then arrested on federal charges two days later and returned to jail. The Freedom Fund is a nonprofit that provides resources to people incarcerated while awaiting trial. Uh, the prosecutor argued that Mohammed repeatedly endangered the lives of law enforcement officers, caused thousands of dollars in property damage, and encouraged others to commit violence. Prosecutors previously have cited in court Mohammed's social media posts that promoted violence toward police in other cities, including Kenosha, Wisconsin and Chicago, arguing that they revealed his anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremist ideology. In one photo depicting events in Kenosha, Mohammed added a caption that read, um, be heavily armed with the intent to engage in violent activities. He did just that, Delfro to the court. <clears throat> in state court, Mohammed pleaded guilty in March to four counts of riots, two counts of attempted second-degree murder, four counts of criminal mischief, and one count each of manufacture of a destructive device, possession of a destructive device, possession of a firearm, and a second-degree assault. And uh, giving him only 10 years, it says prosecutors took into account Mohammed's past military service and his history of abuse as a child. The, um, the difficulty is, and the, the one reason to do this, is that even in Portland, there are some acts of political violence that cannot be overlooked and forgotten, including throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers. Not a worthy endeavor in this greatest nation on God's green earth.